Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to Be Real Guys. It's a movie reviewing podcast. Uh, thousands of uh, actually, I I really have no idea how far below the water submarines go. But welcome to the show, all the same. I am Chance Solom Pfeiffer, and I'm Noah Ballard. And uh, thanks for being with us, Noah. How are you, man? I'm. Uh, you know, uh, I have my good days and my bad. Yes. You know. Uh, currently coming to you taped from Midtown Manhattan. So the scenery is a bit different from my vantage. Yeah. I'm looking at the Chrysler building right now, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, how about you, buddy? You doing all right? Yeah, everything's... What's the, what's the word? Everything's fine over here. Just uh, late January in Portland, which as it turns out is about 51 degrees, which is quite nice. That's not bad. Yeah, we just got over uh, Blizzard Jonas, which hit the city. We got like 22 inches of snow that the past couple days. It's insane. Leading to a nice barrage of Noah Ballard Instagrams, I think. Right. Well, we went on this nice little walk from, uh, from near Grand Central to around Times Square. And there was like, there was a travel ban. So there were no cars on the road. Everything was snow covered. It was really nice. And I got to see a woman taking a piss in the middle of Times Square, the most conspicuous place <laughs> to take a piss in the country. <sighs> well, good day for all then. Everyone involved, I think. So after a bit of a hiatus, which was almost completely my fault, uh, Chance and I are back here on Be Real Guys. And once more, we play our dangerous game, a game of chess against our old adversary movies <laughs> of a specific genre. As Chance knows quite well, I have a soft spot for movies that portray hostile takeovers of a cramped environment, whether it's a building, an airplane, or a mode of public transportation. Today, we've risen to periscope depth to engage one another in movies taking place on submarines. This genre has many terrific examples, including U-571, Das Boot, The Enemy Below, and Run Silent, Run Deep, and some not-so-terrific ones like K-19, The Widowmaker, Black Sea, Down Periscope, and Phantom. We've chosen to review The Hunt for Red October, Below, and in celebration of the Alabama win in the national championship game, Crimson Tide. To evaluate these films, I'll posit in my reviews, the keys to creating a great submarine movie are to properly convey the claustrophobia of the environment, create a meaningful enemy, whether or not they're actually seen on screen, and finally, to be a window into what it means to follow the chain of command even if that construct is counterintuitive to the circumstances in which these sea dogs find themselves. And to assess the accuracy and believability of the Hollywood Navy, Chance has brought in a submarine expert to analyze these films and discuss life on a submarine. So set a zero bubble, man your battle stations, and try not to make too much noise, because Chance and I have the con. (laughs) (laughs) That was, I think, brilliantly done. Uh, we're super excited to welcome uh, John Clear to the show, uh, and I I talked to John, who uh, I'm about to introduce better than I can right now, in a recorded thing. Uh, so let's have him weigh in on the genre and do some fact and fiction, and then we'll hear his reviews as we go through the movies. Here's my conversation with John Clear. Well, I'm pleased to welcome uh, a guest to the podcast today, here to give us an expert's look at these Hollywood movies. It's a person who spent nearly 50 years working on and around submarines in and outside of the U.S. Navy. He operates the website USSCLion.com to commemorate the vessel on which he served in the late 60s, as well as the decades of other Navy men who served aboard the Sea Lion. Uh, Welcome to the show, John Clear. Thanks for being here, sir. Well, 
thank you, Chance. I'm uh, glad to take the opportunity to try and uh, direct some of your fans towards the submarine movies. Yeah, well, I think it's a great, uh, a great and very specific uh, genre. And we should also say before you get started, um, if anyone listening has a hankering to own a physical copy, a physical copy of any of these we talk about, as well as many, many other submarine movies, uh, you, they're all available uh, via a link on your site. Let's start with a movie that um, Noah and I actually are not going to discuss at length later in the episode, but I think is really valuable in terms of establishing the criteria for great submarine movies. You told me via email that you find uh, Wolfgang Peterson's Dust Boat to be the uh, kind of the gold standard for submarine movies. Uh, why is that a favorite of yours? Well, <clears throat> for several reasons. Number one... I believe it to be the most accurate that uh, oh any non-nuclear submarine uh, sailor would look at and identify with, uh, whether it be a German subsailor or American. The special effects were great, and this is one of those movies that was uh, World War II or before, which I tend to go for, being the older fella uh, in the room. Mm-hmm. And, it's it's just a great movie overall. Yeah. Um, talk to me about what, if there's anything specific uh, you're thinking of when you say people who've served on subs, whether German or American, might find it to be the most accurate. What, uh, what jumps out in your mind? Well, um, basically the movie is full of emergencies. And that sure. necessarily mean that's what's happening all the time. But they do cover all these emergencies and actions in a, a proper way. I, I would say uh, they it's it doesn't come across as phony. Even sure. between our two navies, we can identify with everything that happened during the story. And uh, as compared to some of the Three Stooges type movie, this is obviously <laughs> something that we can really enjoy seeing. I'm curious, it seems to me, having watched, I guess, like four submarine movies in the last week or so, um, that one of the things that they really need to do to be successful is make you feel the closeness of quarters aboard the boat, like the almost claustrophobic sense that you don't have your own space, especially during the emergency times that you're talking about. What Would you agree with that? And what would you say a good submarine movie has to do kind of visually to create an authentic experience of being on the sub visually uh that would have to uh, actually include the equipment okay our side the the realistic equipment it, you know you've seen movies where uh there's a square room and that's supposed to indicate a submarine's interior obviously that can't happen Oh, just in the, in the colors, in the sounds, I don't think I've ever seen a sub-movie that didn't have some kind of sonar pinging in the background at one time or another. You know, that's the audio side of things. But the crew's reaction, the basically the little bit of terror that might show on faces at the, the, the right moment. I don't mm-hmm. think any of us have ever gone through any kind of emergency where you just failed uh, and stood still. Everybody jumps into action at the right time and does what they're supposed to do, whether it be the older boats or even current uh, ballistic missile boats. So it's it's part of the overall, as you say, genre for uh, the submarine movies. All right, John, uh, moving to our, our final section here, I wanted to ask you a series of um, fact or fiction questions. And these, I think, are... Um, call them tropes or cliches that seem to happen kind of across the genre. And I guess I want, I we'd love your opinion on how plausible they are. So fact or fiction skittishness and superstition among the crew were common on long submarine missions. Fiction. Why is that? Well, I, I just can't think of a circumstance where we did anything like, uh, Mm. worry about ghosts <laughs> yeah ghosts that comes to mind the one exception might be probably if you watched enough movies you'd see a, uh, a movie where they had a calendar of betty grable hanging in the crew's mess during the war and every time they went to 
battle stations that come by and kiss their hand and pat her butt on the way through, you know, that type of thing. But so incidental, I wouldn't say that it would be a sure. superstition per se. More like custom than superstition. Yeah. I mean, we used to say uh, it was uh, bad karma to have women aboard. Now look at it, you know, so it mm. can go all kinds of ways. All right. Uh, fact or fiction? Whether it's a winch unwinding or someone dropping a hammer, everyone aboard and possibly even enemy vessels can hear everything. <laughs> oh, there again. Uh, I would say it would be pretty much closer to the fact side. Okay. Keep in mind, our modern sonar <clears throat> isn't out there pinging, you know, uh, necessarily what they would call active sonar. You can spot a whale halfway across the ocean or something. As they've said in uh, many, many articles and such that uh, what our submarines look for now with passive sonar is a hole in the ocean where there is no sound. And that's a better giveaway than anything. So if, you know, large enough hammer, uh, large enough hatch slamming, that type of uh, uh, occurrence happened, I, I'm sure it could be picked up. Interesting. Uh, following up on the sonar then, um, and I, I, we've found this, according to these movies, uh, fact or fiction though in real life, sonar guys are the rock stars of submarines. No, I'd say every crew member is because they all have their specific jobs to do. Yeah. Sonar is a very tedious uh, watch, let's put it that way, to stand. These mm -hmm. guys, when they're on, say, a four-hour watch, they have just been totally mesmerated, uh, mesmerized, excuse me, with the screen in front of them, with the, the sounds they have to listen for. So it's it's kind of a grueling job, per se, whether they're a rock star or not. Yeah, if they say the submarine, they would be, but uh, I don't know of that many occasions. They just do their job like everybody else does. Sure. That's interesting, because I feel like in movies, to move, specifically to move the plot along, it's always the whiz guy uh, on the sonar who lets everyone know like what the next big action sequence is. So, probably a movie-specific thing. You always see the captain come up behind him and pat him on his shoulder, you know, what's happening. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, well, they are, in that respect, the eyes and ears of the submarine, but a lot of things couldn't happen without the other members also. Sure. And I wasn't a submarine, by the way, so, you know, I can talk about that. that. There you go. Okay, fact or fiction. Evasive combat maneuvers have cool pet names like the Crazy Ivan. <laughs> I was going to bring that up earlier when you were talking about Hunt for Red October. It's a fact that one of our submarines, the USS Batfish, followed a Russian submarine for months on its patrol off the Atlantic, right on its tail the whole way. And Crazy Ivans were part of the, I would say, uh, <clears throat> maneuvers that the Russian sub would take. So these different angles and dangles and changing below thermal layers, etc., they're all part of the evasive actions that a submarine can take uh whether it does a lot of good or not i think the russian sub would probably say yet but uh yeah they're out there and it's a fact uh and then last one fact or fiction impromptu combat drills are a big part of submarine service uh depending on the classification of the boat i would say uh Currently, yes, with our uh, miss ballistic missile boats, there are a lot of uh, ongoing drills, whether it be a fire drill or, and I mean actual fires, uh, or a missile readiness drill. They have to stay on their toes cruise-wise uh, on, on an ongoing basis. You can't go out there and sleep and read for three months and come back to port and be battle-hardened and ready. So... I say that is definitely a fact. That's probably one of the strongest of the fact fictions. Thanks so much to John for uh, appearing on the show. Now, I wasn't there when they invented submarines, nor the concept of being able to fire nuclear weapons from them. But in the Hollywood sense, the takeaway from this nautical innovation is... Someone created these machines so we could tell stories about when they go rogue.
And when you think about the category of submarine movies as a cousin of, say, airplane action movies, whether through aero or hydrodynamic necessity or just irony, for movies, our most glorious inventions are pretty much death tubes waiting to be commandeered. The 80s and 90s were apparently a really ripe time for following that idea to its logical, disastrous end, especially when you consider what a theme it is in 90s action movies that Russia just slides politically backward into becoming the Soviet Union again. But I think looking at why there are no submarine movies now is a nice reverse signal for seeing what made them work then. For one, well, they're not remotely in our popular consciousness anymore. There's no world war. But when you talk about these nuclear sub-movies in particular, it's a very strange time in action movie making when these two nations who'd been on thin ice for a half century had these incredible toys. And I like the idea, and so too must have audiences, that you can boil incredibly large geopolitical issues down to a group of people unable to reach the outside world and arguing for the fate of humanity inside a cylinder. So I'm judging these movies on the usual things. How good are the screaming matches? How overdone are the adventures on the low seas soundtracks? But mostly for their inside-outside game. How the inevitable squabbling of command relates to the world at large. And how do you make a movie with men standing around metal and a shape hurtling through monochromatic abyss interesting in terms of visual movement? And now, away. Dive! Dive! Very good, Chance. All right. Uh, where do you want to start, buddy? Uh, why don't we start with the, uh, the Hunt for Red October? That is just what I was hoping you'd say. This is the 1990 John McTiernan movie based on Mr. Thomas Clancy's debut novel. It stars Alec Baldwin as the Jack Ryan character, who you know from uh, later Tom Clancy books, as, as well as movies. It's been portrayed twice by Harrison Ford and dreadfully once by chris pine um and not so great by ben affleck too in the oh, sum of all I fears forgot that one uh, how dare you forget the sum of all fears when the nuke actually does go off i that movie's bad um so this movie starts with the ussr no is it still the ussr yes because it's the 80s yeah the soviet submarine uh red october uh, captained by the genius um, submarine captain Ramius. Um, it, it, this Red October is a special what prototype submarine that has a special undetectable engine. Is that how you would describe it? Can't be picked yeah, up by sonar. Yeah, the caterpillar sonar. engine, isn't it? Yeah, um, that's right. Caterpillar is the term I'm looking for. Um, and somehow the principal from Ferris Bueller's Day Off somehow works us through like the propulsion system that lay people were not meant to understand in a way that you're like, huh, so it's super quiet. Yep. Well, the submarine, help me out here. I want to say it just goes rogue, but what's so, the well, sequence the of events? So on the maiden voyage for this new, on this maiden voyage for the new, this new Soviet submarine, uh, well, the fact that it's the submarine even exists raises flags in the CIA because this is a, a submarine that's going to be undetectable to their sonar. So Jack Ryan, played by Alec Baldwin, goes on like on an adventure to figure out what the purpose of this submarine is and why it's like coming towards the U.S. And then at the same time, you focus on Sean Connery playing Captain Ramius who has, you're not sure at the beginning what he's doing, but he's going off whatever sort of protocol and orders he's been given. He's going he like, off book. He's going off book. Because he pretty quickly, uh, <laughs> with some hot tea and some like, uh, you know, the use of his forearm, kills his political officer yes. and makes up some new plans and sets course for... Uh, mainland USA with this undetectable Russian submarine. And so then the Russians come chasing after him, trying to figure out what's going on. And Alec Baldwin has to figure out what's going on. And the U S Navy has to figure out what's going on. And ultimately it becomes a story of two men trying to negotiate, uh, this like parable about the cold war. And once more, we play our dangerous game. A game of chess, 
against our old adversary, the American Navy. Let's hear ex-Navy man John Clear's review really quick. I wanted to ask you about individually about the, the three movies that, that Noah and I uh, watched for this week's episode. Um, so on a scale of C-Ready, which would be good, to Sunk, which would be bad, um, how well does Hunt for Red October handle submarines, do you think? <laughs> well, I like your rating system. There's about 150 movies out on submarines. Uh I would say Red October is near the top. I can't think of anything other than possibly Das Boot type thing that uh, I would say is any better. Uh, it was not without a, a couple of minor technical flaws, as it were, but uh, just the overall storyline uh, is a possibility, let's put it that way, of, of everything that sure. was happening. Uh, sure. The idea of a Russian crew... At least the officers getting together to take over the submarine to bring it to the United States is a little hard to swallow, but <laughs> sure. Uh, <clears throat> the way they did it came across like a, a possibility. Let's put it that way. You didn't have any issues swallowing Sean Connery's accent, or lack thereof, maybe. No, I think if you're in love with Sean Connery, you can take it <laughs> in all <laughs> kinds of uh, personas. We sail into history. Do you mind if we start with Connery? We certainly may. He is so convincing in a way that should not work at all because he famously does not attempt a Russian accent after after that device that you and I both love of uh, the camera kind of reversing field inside of the political officer's mouth and coming out with the Russian speaking English. Um, I think that this movie, anytime someone is bugging you about realism in movies, I think you can point to Sean Connery's performance as evidence of the fact that you just need to be convinced with a light in your, the Hollywood light in your eyes that this man with his incredible posture, his deep voice and his few words is a Russian submarine captain. Right, and his like, his majestic white beard. Oh, it's amazing. This man, this this man Hell is. Hell of a cool. toupee even, too. Oh, it's great. He's not even Russian though. He's like Lithuanian right. or something. Ramius isn't but a still, Russian. Still like, right? But he still should not have a Scottish accent. <laughs> and that's the funny thing about it is because everyone around him attempts a Russian accent except for that. That one old stalwart who refuses to do anything about his performance that would indicate that he was, you know, a communist. This is an interesting one to think about in terms of Tom Clancy movies or movies based on Tom Clancy books, too. Because if you've ever even seen a Tom Clancy book, just the spine of one, you know that most of them are not easily adapted to movies because they are mostly giant chunks of like pseudo political background. Hunter Red October is a pretty easy to get through book, but at the same time, it still does a really good job of assembling the ramifications, whether it's in the Soviet Union or at Langley, because Jack Ryan's a CIA analyst, about like what what this submarine going into the ocean like means for the rest of the world and how they like need to respond with these war games right well that's that's like this such a strange thing about it because like i feel like tom clancy has now become such a brand of like shoot 'em up rainbow six style video game storytelling sure when really like the hunt for red october is not an action movie it really isn't it's it's a drama i mean there are some of the classic uh you know, submarine tropes of splashes in the water and, you know, running headlong into a torpedo to get to it before it can properly arm itself. And there are, like, tense moments of that nature. But ultimately, there... I mean, I guess there is a little gunplay, too. But it's... I wouldn't call this an action movie. Yeah, I think the most exciting things about it are usually the small reveals. Like, right. like you mentioned, you are captivated by wondering why on earth this apparently dutiful captain 
has just uh, broken the neck of his political officer. Like, you really want to know why. It wasn't the action scene of the neck breaking, which is just ridiculously, like, happening off screen that's interesting. It's it's you wondering. It's the questions right. that make the difference. Right. Um, and then, I mean, and that's what I think makes the movie, like, ultimately very watchable. Because if... Maybe you can follow me out into this limb here, but I think The Hunt for Red October is like one of the silliest movies of the genre. Just in these like weird political asides, like with the politician guy who's like, you know, I'm a politician. I'm a liar and a crook, you know? <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> you know, and then his like this conversation that goes on between this Russian diplomat and the U.S. ambassador or whatever right. about you know, they're just kind of speaking in code about what the status is of this submarine. And then meanwhile, you've got Alec Baldwin, who currently probably couldn't fit into a submarine, like oh, jumping wow. off a he- jumping off a helicopter in the middle of wherever. That's a really good scene, though. It is a great scene. And then you just have like Courtney B. Vance and Scott Glenn just like chilling in a submarine. Just like they don't seem to have any chain of command. They're just bros hanging out, listening for stuff. It's silly, but it's but, serious, right? Like this is a more serious movie than Crimson Tide, I think. It's just such a strangely like presented movie, but the plotting is just so tight and the politics are just so fascinating in a 2015 slash 16 viewing in such a dated but fascinating way yeah, that it's just so watchable because it's got this nineties like sort of mass market political appeal. That's a good way to put it. And I think there are moments when it goes beyond silly and has like, there are some real mishandlings. Like the epilogue is quite bad. I mean, usually you can, you know, you I can do that with this movie. Like, just cut the epilogue out of your mind. Like, that's fine. Right. But it's quite bad. Um, what else? Like, I don't think... I think this movie, more so than other ones we watched today, uh, falls into a trap with the underwater CGI. Like, I know that McTiernan is a bold director, so he wants to show it, but I think you have to avoid the trap of wanting to show the submarine moving in space after people have yelled out a command. And he does this about, I don't know, 20 times. Cause right. you know, you, when you don't have a sense of scale and it's clearly CGI, it's not interesting, especially in that really long navigating the Canyon sequence when someone goes rightful rudder. And then you just see a computerized shape turn in a frame where there's nothing else in it like i think that's a misstep um but it doesn't affect what you like about the characters i also think baldwin baldwin is pretty good here because most of the movie people are underestimating him and he does have the right answer which like that's the thing about alec baldwin is like he is you always know watching him that he's I mean he's the handsomest person in the world as a young man like he's better right. than everyone else. Oh and this is vintage Baldwin this right here. This is vintage Baldwin. So the things that don't work are like when he has to pretend to be a normal guy. Like the thing with his daughter. Like you don't have a daughter Alec Baldwin like you're not a you're not a nice like I can tell from the acting performances, like you're not a nice normal guy. So like the scenes right. are much better when the admiral's like, "You don't have the answer. You're an analyst," and he's like, "Oh, don't I? I've met Ramius. Like he's made for right. those moments." Did he do a crazy Ivan to the left yep. because it was the bottom half of the hour? Exactly. You know that's just good stuff right there. And he's super charming, yes. and he's super like yeah. The other thing, too, is speaking of, like, weird characters that aren't, like, very developed, there's also, like, the subplot with uh, Stellan Skarsgård as, like, Ramius's, like, protege slash rival. So, and ultimately, like, that forces the climax of the movie, but is ultimately not that important to the movie. Right. Yeah. That's what I don't understand. Like, that is, like, my only real, like tripping up point about this movie is there's so much that's not necessary to tell this story. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder like, what 
like, what is the, what is the story? What is the takeaway? And like going back to the points I was making in my opening, you know, does it convey claustrophobia? I would say yes. That's a pretty good job. Does it create a meaningful enemy? I think the enemy in this, and maybe I'll make the same point in Crimson Tide, but the enemy in this movie is just the misunderstanding between two, like the West and the East. Yeah. But then when you get to like the question of following the chain of commands, the setup is just so preposterous that I know that John thought that this movie was like very good and like could have potentially happened. But like for me, it's just there's just so many like unanswered questions, but I don't even know like what questions I should be asking because there's just so much they just kind of. The movie, you know, much like the Red October itself, plowing through that canyon, just sort of goes for it. And, like, if you're confused, whatever. There'll be another scene in a few minutes that'll distract you. I think that's a good point. And I think that it's it'll be interesting to talk about Crimson Tide because Crimson Tide is a movie where the whole thing unfolds between two people. Everything unfolds inside of the submarine. Hunt for Red October, you have to take on its own terms because there are crazy crosswinds that happened before the movie even started outside of the submarine. You just have to right. take it with a larger grain of salt. Right. So, but at the end of the day, when we get to our ratings here, I still think that this is a good, good movie. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at two different pages of notes I have, and on one I have written good, good, and the other I have written bad, good. So I think that combines... To I'll be nice and say at worst, a soft good, good. At worst, it's bad good. Like if right. you're not a submarine movie enthusiast, yeah. it's not gonna be like a slog to get through. Yeah. Um, but like as some sort of, I mean, this movie I don't think was nominated for any awards or anything. Don't believe so. So, but I had I had fun watching it with you yeah. uh, on our our hangover day, and uh, I had fun thinking about it, and I've enjoyed this movie every time I've watched it uh, since I was a kid. So good, good from me. I will say the same in a in a soft way. Shall we? Why don't we do? What do you want to do next? I want to get to below. Let's do below next. Yes, and we're talking about the the two thousand two American. Uh, World War II submarine movie with a hint of the supernatural. So it starts all in dark red with the captain of the boat, Bruce Greenwood, and a lieutenant played by Holt Michelinie, who we talked about in the last episode, um, whose wife, Liam Neeson, insulted and run all night. They're standing on the the ship and something has, something has gone, something is awry. You know something has gone wrong. And then we right. get out of the red scene and it goes to a normal like sky and ocean. And then right. they die. Well, it's with weird these... because like the red, it's red, but then it pulls out to reveal like the red is not just like bad CGI. It just like the world happens to be red that day. I, I, I don't know if I got that. It didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I wasn't certain about it either. Okay. Um, but yeah, but something isn't right, and eventually they pick up the survivors from like a uh, British a hospital British, boat, a, a British hospital boat that has presumably been attacked by a Nazi submarine that's like still in the area. Mm-hmm. And so there's a couple survivors and this female doctor and like one of the things about submarines and John talks about this too, is the fact that like having women on board is considered like bad luck. Yeah. I mean, yeah. In the 1940s. And like everyone in the movie acknowledges they like don't want to have a woman on board. And then it comes to pass that like, it turns out one of the patients they've brought on is actually a Nazi. Mm-hmm. And things start to get weird and the boat starts to break down and people start dying and people who are not who they seem. And it basically turns, I mean, the movie is advertised or is uh, categorized on IMDb as a horror movie. And that's, that's what it is. And I think the funniest thing about like just the, the on paper details of this movie is one of the writers of the script was Darren Aronofsky. That's right. That is right. Which I think is incredible. I don't really see his influence anywhere other than just how weird it is. 
Right. I mean, I don't think it... I mean, that's what's so interesting about it is that, like, you could have told me that he didn't write it and I would have been okay with it, too. <laughs> right. In 99 other universes, I am telling you that. This is the only one where he had a writing credit on it. Uh, right. Let's hear John talk about 2002's Below real quick. We have contact. Starboard beam, 11 miles out, sir. Stand by to board survivors. Then the other one, and I think this is a little lesser known of one, but the 2002 movie set in the World War II era, uh, the movie Below, Sea Ready or Sunk? Uh, a little above stunk. Okay. <laughs> uh, technically, both visually and audio, I can't say much in the sunk category per se, but what I get at is the overall storyline sure is not the best i agree with you little unbelievable they take two completely different areas of belief the submarine and ghosts and try and bring them together in a movie and that's that's little hard fence that's almost like snakes on an airplane or something of that (laughs) so it is not my favorite movie by any means i'm telling you there's some bad hoodoo on this boat it ends up trying to do a lot. And accomplishing very little. Right, with a lot of faces you don't know and resulting in... Well, it's a lot of faces you don't know where you recognize them right, from. Right. Like, the main guy, Odell, is uh, Reese Witherspoon's, like, boyfriend from yeah. uh, Legally Blonde. Matthew Davis. Matthew Davis. Then you have, like, Scott Foley, who was, like, the love interest from Felicity. And then, like, Olivia Williams, who is the love interest from, like, Rushmore. Yep. And, and Bruce Greenwood. And Bruce Who is a classic, who, if you're not us, is a person that you are like, what's that guy from that thing doing here? But we know it's Bruce Greenwood. Right. So there's a moment, if I can say some nice things first, there's a moment in the setup where this, like, this Benny Goodman record keeps going off at these crucial moments where they feel like they're being hunted by this German U-boat and they can't have any sound um, on the submarine and this someone keeps putting this Benny Goodman, Phantom Benny Goodman record on where you feel like there's a while where I feel like they use the crevices and the curtains and the weird compartments of a submarine well in a horror setup sense uh, mm-hmm. But I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't last that long. This movie kind of gives up on its visual commitment to that sense of people popping out of compartments you didn't expect were there. I just think it's it's a weird. And John mentions this too about like the fusing of um, the horror genre and the submarine genre. Is that like it's tr- it's like setting a haunted house in a studio apartment. Like, there's only so many places, like, things or people can be. Yeah. yeah. That, like, you run, like, they search the ship in a 30 second, second montage, and then, like, they know that there's no one else on the ship. Right. <laughs> That's true. And also, I mean, same principle with um, kind of, like, things that go bump in the night. If, if the night is a submarine where you don't want to drop anything because you'll get a torpedo for it. Um, right. The malfunctions and the noises and the blackouts that gets to be way too much of the same to the point where by the time it's happening in the middle, it's completely unremarkable that things are going wrong. Well, then, I mean, I think that gets into the sort of the like the genetic problem of this movie, like down in its DNA is the fact that like it expects you like the turn of it expects you to. Like it's a total breakdown of what I'm what I was talking about in my intro of the chain of commands. Right. That you you have completely misunderstood who the meaningful enemy was leading up to this moment. And any sort of like claustrophobia or superstition or something that's going on in the submarine is ultimately like not a greater sort of question about submarines or the navy or war. But just, like, bad guys being bad guys. That's true. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, the, tw- so. the twist just isn't that great. And I think my big... Here's my biggest problem with it, and the reason... Um, I don't want to get to ratings too quickly, but, I mean, I feel like you can hear our tone a little bit. I 
a movie where you have to suspend your disbelief this much, but doesn't give us anything or more specifically anyone to look at in terms of star power is not going to work because the whole, I mean, you have people, you have people actually in Bruce Greenwood who looks like he could have been a matinee idol 25 years ago. And you have people like Matthew Davis who looks like knockoff Leonardo DiCaprio, but you just have these actors that I think Bruce Greenwood is almost up to the task, but you just don't have the pedigree for uh, to give us a movie this shaky and this goofy, but then also don't give us anyone to well, hang out with. Who like, were... If it, they had been like more compelling casting choices, th- and then that's the thing too is like the movie looks fine. Like there's nothing like campy about the production design, which was like right. what I was thinking going into like a movie with no like big A-list actors in it. It's like, oh, it's going to look kind of campy, but it doesn't. It has like the patina of a nineties action movie, but then it's just like, even in that scene when like Bruce Greenwood's like losing his shit and he's like changing his clothes or whatever. And everyone's dead. Like he just like, he doesn't have him if have it in him to take this movie like on his back. No, you're right. Yeah. So it's nice to watch him get ragged, but by the time, by the time he really has to do something, you're just like, that's Bruce Greenwood. And he's not, not up to this. He's like, when can I do my JFK impression? That's what I'm really known for. I was best at making sure the submarines didn't have trouble. Um, (laughs) 13 days reference. Um, Yeah, it was great. Let's see. Uh, The only thing we have to fear is the ghost of the former captain haunting this (laughs) submarine. And there's your spoiler. You no longer have to watch this movie. Um... And I don't think you need to. It's not It's not horrible. I wasn't upset. But, you know, bad, bad. I'm going to have to say bad, good. Do you have to say that? I'm going to have to say bad, good. You might need to say and a I little think, bit more about why it's watchable. I think it's... I mean, it has no star power whatsoever. But because of, like, the production value being pretty good and seeing... Uh, Wait, who's the guy who's, who's the other like weird like B-list actor who's in this movie? Hold on, not Zach Galifianakis. Oh, it's Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> so seeing Zach Galifianakis like get on like a a World War II diving suit and then like go out and like kind of repair the outside, but there's nothing wrong with it with Scott Foley, and then like people are just getting killed left and right. It's just such a funny goofy like 90 minute thing that like i think if you like submarine movies you will enjoy this movie in an inoffensive way so i think that's i think that's bad good all right i won't i won't fight you on that i don't care enough about this movie to fight you on that so that's kind of where i landed i tell you what i do care about though is uh your feelings on Crimson Tide. I have some. I have some. So, guys, in 1995's Crimson Tide, starring Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington, what Russia, and this is what I talked about in my uh, intro, Russia's in a state of crisis where a nationalist has taken control of a nuclear base just because he wants Russia to be totalitarian Soviet Union again. Um, that spawns an emergency submarine mission from the U.S. to be in position for a preemptive nuclear strike if necessary. And the executive officer of the USS Alabama is played by Denzel Washington, who's never been on this boat before. He's been, uh, what, reassigned at the last minute, right? Right, because the, the XO, who's normally there has uh, appendicitis. There you go. Uh, The captain of the boat is uh, Gene Hackman, who just comes to get it in this movie. Um, But, so yeah, they get down there. They get out to where they're supposed to be. They are awaiting in order, nervously, to hear about what is happening at this nuclear base in Russia. They get one order that says, shoot, while these two are, while Denzel and Hackman are having kind of a building of philosophical tension 
and then they lose communication and they get half of another order uh which denzel thinks says don't shoot and hackman doesn't care and like that's when this movie goes what i'm saying captain is that we have backup now it's our duty not to launch until we can confirm you're presuming that we have other submarines out there ready to launch this captain i must assume that our submarines could have been taken out by other akulas last and maybe least because we emailed about it beforehand uh on a scale of sea ready to sunk where does crimson tide land for you oh boy uh here again technically it was done rather well uh, good cinematography good sound etc gene hackman uh is a little hard to believe as the ceo of the submarine uh the <laughs> I hate to give everything away, but the mutiny on board is sure even more hard. Uh, having a dog aboard, you know, <laughs> like demon that has to walk the dog around with a bag in his hand, that type of thing. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you just purely like hypothetically aboard a, a nuclear sub. Do are this the CO and the XO like they are in Crimson Tide? Is there ever a scenario where they could philosophically disagree in the way that Hackman and Denzel do in that movie, or is, does that seem like complete fabrication? Uh, they would not be on a submarine and be that far apart. Let's put it that way. Not only sure. personalities, but uh, just professionalism would not let them advance that far. Either one of them into the submarine uh, community. And the the tie between a CO and an XO is one of the tightest on board. They mm-hmm. have they have to see eye to eye, and they would know it well ahead of time. Let's put it that way. Gotcha. Um, I think if I was the CO, I would have <clears throat> got rid of my XO before we ever went to see if there was some disagreement that way, or if makes he, sense, or the other way around. The XO might just ask for a transfer. So mm-hmm. it, it's a little far fetched in that. Fueling our missiles. We don't have time to fuck around. Sir, I think you need time to think this over. I don't have to think this over. So this movie is, yeah, it's 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 Washington versus uh, Hackman. Yes. And with Tony Scott moderating. With Tony Scott moderating and a host of great actors who literally do nothing uh, <laughs> to stop either one of them from just like grandstanding over the other. Like you've got James Gandolfini who like runs from the back of the ship to the front of the ship with a gun and like curses a little bit of Vigo Mortensen who like can only shake his head. <laughs> and you've got, who else is in yeah, this? Yeah, Matt Craven. You got Matt Craven in this. You have Steve Zahn in it. You got the uh, you got Rick Schroeder from NYPD Blue. Mm-hmm. You've got Ryan Phillippe, who has no lines. No, he just looks at a fish. He does look at a fish. Um, yeah, and then Rick Schroeder, his only real role is like just to lose his shit and then close that door. Is this our first Denzel movie? I don't know. Denzel Washington is my favorite actor ever, I think. Um, even currently, even currently, uh, current Denzel with his choices. No, not current Denzel. Uh, okay. How about past Denzel, past me? We have a great relationship. Nineties Denzel. You're talking like Pelican Brief Denzel. Yeah, but also like early two thousands Denzel. Okay. Um, he, like Training Day Denzel. Love Training Day Denzel. Love Deja Vu Denzel. Inside Man Denzel. What about like Remember the Titans Denzel? Sure. Yeah. Um. I'll take them all. Okay. He very, very rarely in his movie career, uh, I want to say, let's say Philadelphia, notwithstanding, has uh-huh. had to do battle with someone, not just in terms of like literal what's happening in the story, but in terms of sharing the stage, like having to right. be good at like giving up the spotlight for a second so someone could come back at him. And he and Hackman are just absolutely electric because you have these moments of tension leading up to this incident of being told to fire the nuclear weapons where they're just kind of like trading and hypotheticals around a table about whether the u.s should have bombed hiroshima and nagasaki in 1945 and right and uh 
Hackman's like Hackman's really testing him and Denzel's like eventually makes it around after a lot of flattery to saying that war itself is the enemy and it just does a really good job of setting up these two giant personalities as to who's gonna snap first and I love the idea that the person who snaps first which is Hackman and he screams at him in this like crazy intense moment because they've been whispering for the last 45 minutes the person who snaps first is actually sort of the weakest um, at right. least in terms of like who gets things started and then Denzel gets to have his moment, but like watching the two of them just face off is pretty great. And it's just not something you get to see in Denzel's filmography. Well, my question for you is, do you think that, cause there's a line early on and I forget who says it, but they kind of joke about the fact that like the former XO had appendicitis is Gene Hackman just like running through executive officers that he like doesn't get along with? Is that like the implication going in? Oh, I didn't quite get that. Maybe I missed it. You think that was the implication? Yeah, they're they're walking down the hall and Vigo's like smoking a cigarette or whatever. And like I think Gandolfini says something to the effect of like, what was the excuse this time? Appendicitis? Oh. Hmm. That would make sense. So that was interesting to me, and but it also sets the tone that like this guy is not what he seems, or he's exactly what he seems. If that's the way you read him in the previous scene, but yeah, you're right that like that build up to like one of them is gonna tell the other one to like shut the fuck up at some point, and like just the way it comes in where they're talking about like potentially you know starting the end of civilization as we know it, and like. Well, that's the thing, too, is, like, some of these guys on this boat are so hell-bent on, like, ending the fucking world. (laughs) Like, it's just so – I mean, that's the part where, like, I think you needed to to suspend some disbelief. Because I think ultimately – well, I don't know. Like, maybe there's, like, a power there that, like, he wants to be the one who starts it. Like, he wanted to be, like, on one of these airplanes that dropped the bomb on Japan. Yeah. You know, or, like, whatever it is. But he, like, once he gets the order, like, even... I feel like there still would have been debate, like, even if the second message had come through and it had been, like, actually, don't do it, Gene. He would have been, like, I think this is a fake message. Yeah, yeah. It's Like, once someone puts that idea into his mind, like, the men become so, like intent on doing it their divide is i mean it's generational it's probably political it's like definitely temperamental um and it's well i also want to talk about the fact that it's the movie doesn't reference it at all but there has to be like a a racial component right see i don't think it gets to that until the last five minutes when they're talking about those horses in a bit the movie absolutely does not need and Gene Hackman's like, they're beautiful white horses. And Denzel's like, but they're born black, you asshole. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, there's absolutely like a racial component that the script kind of forced in with 10 minutes left. But it's so interesting because like, I feel like that that has like that existed the whole time. Yeah. You know, like you have these moments where Gene Hackman is or where Denzel's like kind of being like, Gene, what are you up to? But, like, in a calm way. And then Gene Hackman's, like, calm down. Like, I feel like there's very much that idea of, like, you know, the idea of the black man being, like, accused of being, you know, upset or, like, really, like, aggressive and angry. Yes. And the fact that, like, he's not being aggressive and Gene Hackman says it anyway, like, just, like, plays into this idea of, you know... He sees him, I think, as subservient, like for a variety of reasons. But I think we're supposed to acknowledge that, like, this guy does see him as a lesser man because he's black. And the also the idea of they're on like the Alabama. See, this is what I want to get to. Like that, it's per- the boat perfectly personifies what's going on. Like you have all of these, like you have hundreds of white sailors like screaming "Roll Tide," and it's like this perfect encapsulation of like white conservative jingoistic like defend white america at all costs kind of thing which i forgot to mention this this is a point i really wanted to make about i think a good submarine movie needs to double down when it comes to the name of the submarine and characterization that's another thing that below missed out on right i had to look up the name of that submarine but the uss alabama you know it's part and parcel of the story 
But the boat is a character. Yeah, totally. Like, you know, and I feel like in all three of them, the boat is a character. Uh, and, like, that's the interesting thing, too, about these movies as well, and especially in Crimson Tide, is, like, at least in, like, the, the later movies um, in the genre, the idea that, like, these boats are not super well-maintained and they're always like they're kind of breaking down and like yeah they go through like really difficult situations by like being close to things that explode but there's also just like things going wrong and they always don't have enough pieces to like put the radio back together like pretty important things but i just feel like there's something kind of interestingly vintage about the submarine in that there is sort of that wink that you know, once technology hits a certain level, like we no longer really need a submarine. Right. That's true. And speaking of the technology in its relationship to like how people are placed, I think Crimson Tide also does the best job of these movies visually. And it's in, it's not in like super ambitious ways, but Crimson Tide does a great job of like making you understand where people are at their post. Like Hunt for Red October does a lot with faces, like trying to create right. trying to create movement by zooming in on a face when there's no space to do that. Crimson Tide mm-hmm. does a good job of making you feel that the boat is tilting and people are running through it. They've got like a really right. good camera. Um, on the bridge where you sort of like see everyone positioned uh, and like you understand like where everyone is oriented, whether it be Sonar or Vigo down in the launch room. I think it does a really good job. I mean, even, you know, you don't get it. You don't like, you don't understand submarines, but this movie makes you think you do. And that's cool. Well, that's the, yeah. And that's the good thing about this movie. I mean, if you compare the visual styles of all three, like this one I think it has that great claustrophobia, but there's it's it's a tight space, but there's also like a lot of it, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Enough for Denzel and, to jog. Right, and to hide and to like take like the back way into the con and whatnot. Yeah. But I think that well, I think with this one, I think Tony Scott is more interested in like the spatial, whereas I think John McTiernan is more interested in the absence of natural light. Yeah, that's true. You pointed that out. You're right. So, I mean, cause he's so obsessed with these like lens flares off of these like shifting from like red to yellow to blue to like over-exaggerated white lights hitting these people. And then, I mean, like below doesn't have much of a visual style beyond like these weird sort of ghost right. moments that are just more, you know, annoying than anything <laughs> else. Um, but yeah, this one is definitely, I mean, it felt a little Michael Mann in the fact that it's so interested in space. Hmm. Yeah. Um, also, can we talk about, there are some great lines in this movie. Like Hackman has some great lines where he's explaining to, uh, well, I'll just say the line. We're here to preserve democracy, not practice it. When he's introducing himself to Denzel, he just spits out in that Hackman way where you like believe he came up with this stuff. He says, uh, I can't stand kiss asses and I can't abide save asses. Like he's just got yep. some really good lines. And uh, speaking of weird uh, screenwriters to punch up the script, Tarantino has an uncredited credit on this. Yeah. It, it's 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 sharp dialogue like i love that like just as things are mounting like between the tension between denzel and gene hackman he's like mr hunter we have rules that are not open to interpretation personal intuition gut feelings hairs in the back of your neck little devils or angels sitting on your shoulder oh. we're all very aware of what our orders are and what these orders mean they come down from our commander-in-chief they contain no ambiguity and as denzel says captain he says mr hunter I've made my decision. I'm captain of this boat. Now shut the fuck up. <laughs> He's so good. Hackman, Hackman's the best, man. Oh my god. He's, but he's so scary. Like he's so scary. Well, I think what's so cool about this role also is Denzel's sense of just being really chill and being really suave and like always being in control for the first part of this movie, he's having to bite his tongue. So like he's Mm, using his cool to keep his cool. And then once Hackman inevitably like has to go away, like Hunter becomes a completely different 
character and of course denzel's up to that task too like running the boat like he can do it he's got that great speech where my favorite thing about denzel is when he's trying to when he's having a tense moment but he's keeping his voice low and he like starts naming things in threes like he's talking to the sonar guys like you're gonna take the key and you're gonna do this and you're gonna do that and you're gonna do this and the guy is like yeah i got it and he just like runs off like he oh man i'm smitten with this role yeah the only thing that i have an issue with in this movie is how many turns it has yeah it's a triple mutiny movie and it's a it's a triple mutiny movie <laughs> you can't do that and make it interesting well i mean it just it it's just so much aggressive back and forth uh between like who has the upper hand and ultimately like to it's it's tough to say like who the protagonist of the film is. Like, I guess the film wants us to believe that it's Denzel Washington, but you know, at the, at the end of the day, in a narrative sense, like you can get behind both of these things. And I guess that's interesting. And they acknowledge it at the end, you know, when they're in like the court martial or whatever. And the guy's like, well, you're both technically right. But that just doesn't make for like, concise and tense drama if like both guys are right you know the movie you're yes you're exactly right i would put it this way in that the movie doesn't you know they never they don't push the button the world doesn't blow up but once the movie pushes its button which is the hackman washington blow up there's sort of a sense of not aimlessness but just scorched earth like you've seen its big trick and so now like anywhere people go it kind of feels like excess and everything like and the epilogue is excess like it doesn't quite know how to end itself in a way that is true to where these characters started like ultimately these guys have been through like one of the most traumatic like workplace crises ever Mm -hmm. and it's just so interesting to me that they can both like you can tell Denzel's rattled at the end of the movie, but Gene Hackman isn't, you know, he says at the end, like, Oh, I I just want to tell you that like I was wrong. And you think he's talking about the, the way he behaved in almost ending the, the world. And he's really just referring to where the country was that the horses were from that they were discussing at the like in a previous yeah, scene. That was kind of jammed. So up. like he just, you know, he understands. But that's like like the really sort of like, I mean, what's questionable about his character, and ultimately I think says a lot about like what this movie should be, is the fact that this dude just had like a bad day at the office, and yeah, like he retired, but like. Ultimately, he only sees it as that. Like, he didn't see it as like, oh, my God, I almost did something horrible. I'm going to lose sleep over it. Like, I don't think he's going to lose any sleep. But Denzel, like, I don't know. He's not saying it, but he's clearly, I don't know. He's seen the flaw in the system. Are we ready? You ready to move to a rating? Aye, Captain. All right. Well, there's only two sides to a mutiny and only four sides to our rating system. Uh, And I think that this movie flaws in tow is good, good. Again, I don't know if I'd call it an action movie. Um, I think it's more of a a drama. The best parts of it are Um, drama. The parts of it that don't necessarily work are an action movie. Well, that's the thing. Like all the action movie sequences, like when they, there is that like uh, a cooler class sub or whatever that's Mm -hmm. uh, above them. Like, that's just to take them deeper into the water so they have no reason to communicate with the outside world. Right. That's not because of, like, some sort of action movie ambition for this movie. So, I think the claustrophobia is there, like you mentioned, with the cinematography being great. I think the meaningful enemy in Gene Hackman is there, and I think the ambiguity of the chain of command is there. So, yeah, I think this is a good, good submarine movie, my friend. All right. Well, what a mission this has been. You know, I think we've made it back to port beyond that horrible green screen of Massachusetts or whatever. <laughs> but, but there's actually palm trees. I think it's Maine. It's Maine, but there's palm trees in the dark. Let's not have our own bad epilogue. Um, let's tell the people. Listen, Chance, I've always wanted to see Montana. <laughs> let's tell the people thank you for listening. You can listen to 
more episodes of Be Real Guys on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher. We'd love for you to check out BeRealGuys.com, which has recently been updated with some cool visual things. Uh, right. You write to us, BeRealGuys at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter. Uh, yeah. Thanks, buddy. And again, apologies to our fan who uh, missed the episode this past week. Uh, things were a little weird, but now they're back to normal and uh, we'll never let you down again. We're going to hop to it. Friend. You're my friend. <laughs> Bye, buddy. I've seen a submarine in 